Welcome to the Being an Engineer podcast. Our guest today is Justin Smart, who is a mechanical designer and has worked at a few well-known product companies such as Emerson, Ryobi, and Motorola, as well as several smaller companies and currently manages his team at Interlink Engineering, where they focus on 3D printer sales, product design services, and on-demand contract engineering placement for companies in need of short-term engineering support. Justin, welcome to the show. Aaron, thanks for having me. All right. So first question, what made you decide to get into the field of CAD design, mechanical design? What, what was it that was attractive about that space for you? Um, honestly, when I was younger, I, I, um, in high school, I thought I wanted to be a welder. And I did a lot of welding and took welding every year in high school. And then uh, it, during my senior year, I noticed that uh, a lot of people in the welding field um, that were older than I was had very poor health. And um, it, it just suddenly occurred to me that it probably wasn't the, the best line of work and occupation. Um, and... Uh, so I guess I had always had kind of that design bug in me and like to take things apart as a child and put, put them back together and build things. And um, Classic engineer. Yeah. So it just, you know, I like to make stuff and I thought I wanted to weld things together. And then, you know, I thought, well, maybe maybe I should get a job inside of the office instead of, I don't know, uh, in the middle of a refinery. <laughs> not, not breathing the fumes in every day. I, yeah, I had right, never right, thought about that. Refineries, so there was a lot of um, uh, piping design, um, you know. So a lot of pipeline design. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, these very large, complicated, isometric drawings. It was kind of like a, a wiring diagram for a refinery. But instead of wires, they're pipes. And... Um, there's millions of pipes and thousands of valves and elbows and they, they can't run into each other. So um, keeping track of all that uh, spaghetti was huh. something I would, you, you know, when you grow up around refiners, you see it everywhere. And then, um, so I got into that in college and it just kind of. Been, and where, where did you grow up? Flowed from there. Where did you grow up? Uh, just outside of St. Louis. The St. Louis metro area. Yeah. Okay. And what what were all the refineries? Were were these like like not oil refineries? Were the like mineral refineries? They were definitely oil refineries. So oil. Um, okay. You got we had Shell and Standard and Amoco, and they were pretty much you know all in the same area. And because you're right on the Mississippi River, so you know you got uh, these different. You know the Mississippi people don't realize it, and probably not as much as it used to be, but it's uh, for north and south. It is how all the commodities travel throughout our nation. And so whether they come from, from other places, they might land in, in Louisiana and, and to get on a barge and head north or grains that are grown up in Wisconsin are put on a barge and then sent south and you got coal and grain and, you know, sometimes there are tankers full of oil and stuff too. And so Okay. And, and how did you get introduced initially to welding? Was that something like your family did or your dad did, or you had friends that were into welding? Yeah, my, my, my stepdad, he was, a, he was a welder. He was also heavily involved in the, in the local pipe fitters union. 
And so it was a very lucrative uh, job if you could survive it, basically. Wow. <laughs> I didn't think about welders and then working all in a, a toxic environment, but I suppose there are tons of like, you know, fumes, chemicals that you're breathing. And then beyond that, you're, you're working with heavy pieces of metal that are probably getting moved around and there's just physical danger due to that. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. My yeah. stepdad broke his back, fell, fell in the hole. Oh, so ouch. yeah, it's uh like I said, it's lucrative if you if you survive it, you know. If you survive it, yeah. My goodness. Okay, so cool. You made the choice to depart this uh, field fraught with danger and health risks and, and jump into a cushy office job. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right, so right out of college, you took a job with Emerson, who who is a, like a huge company. They do so much stuff. Uh, your particular role, I guess, was designing electric motor components and R&D fixtures. Uh, what were some of the projects that you worked on at, at Emerson? Well, Emerson Electric is, uh, at the time, the largest motor manufacturer in the world. I'm not sure if they still are, um, but you know, they had like 54 divisions. And pretty much all of them were somehow related to electric motors. So you probably have one in your house, and Syncorator um, is a division of Emerson, right? So they make sure garbage disposal, which okay. is a big motor mounted to the bottom of your, you know, your drain. Um, U.S. I went to actually work to work for U.S. Motors, and uh, and then I moved from U.S. Motors. I got promoted down to an R and D division within Emerson. But oddly enough, U.S. Motors was a company in Prescott, Arizona. And right before I went to work for them, they actually got moved or Emerson bought that company and moved almost all their employees to St. Louis. And so uh, my boss and my boss's boss, they were all uh, guys from from Prescott pretty much that had moved to St. Louis. It was kind of odd how I ended up out here. you know, is that how you got introduced to Phoenix? All these guys? No, who had... it was just coincidence. But I just thought ah, okay. I found it odd later in life that I came out here and they all went out, went back to St. Louis. Yeah, the the universe wanted you here at some point, right? Yeah. And so the motors, kind of, uh, they make very large motors. Some motors you could actually stand inside of, and then um, a lot of their product. Um, You'll, you can actually see as you drive around the Phoenix metro area, whenever you come to an intersection and you see um, where there's a canal and there's a, sometimes a pump station where they're trying to raise the water from one height so they can get it to flow down the next canal. There's also a very large vertical motor painted beige that's moving that water up a few feet from one canal to the next. And those are almost all U.S. motors. Um, so they make very large uh, industrial electric motors. Cool. I'll have to take a look, uh, see if I can find those next time I'm driving past the canal. Yeah, you drive past them every day. You just don't realize it. That's, uh, it was just, I just happened to know what the, what the castings look like because I worked on the drawings all the time. So I could spot that cast. I'm like, hey, I know what that looks like. That <laughs> That's pretty cool, isn't it, yeah. to see something you worked on out in the wild. What a great feeling. Yeah, yeah. I've got a few things I've designed out in the wild. When I worked at Ryobi, when, that's who moved me out here was Ryobi. Um, yeah. Okay. So let me ask a question about Ryobi. Mm-hmm. I 
when when I saw that, I thought, okay, this is Ryobi, like the big company, lawnmowers and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I tried to find the location, I, I had no idea that they had a location here in Arizona. Uh, so the Ryobi you worked at, that's like, that was the big Ryobi, the one that everyone knows, in, the one that's in Home Depot, right? Well, yeah. And so there was two divisions. There's Ryobi Outdoor Products, and they make basically the lawn and garden, the line trimmers, hedge trimmers, that type of equipment. The Ryobi that makes the drills, like the hand drills, was a yeah. separate division and wasn't related to us What's other than the name and the corporate headquarters back in Japan. Got it. Um, so the same company. MTD purchased Ryobi Outdoor Products a number of years ago. So basically all the guys I worked with at Ryobi or some of them became, it became MTD and then MTD just got purchased uh, about two years ago, maybe about a year and a half ago by uh, Black and Decker. Okay. They're still called MTD. I think under the trade name, you know, they, they kept the name, but they're owned by Black and Decker now. Got it. And what were you making? You said it was lawnmowers and things like that. Yeah, um, and I was going to say that that's a, a, a product that I worked on when I was there was the uh, attachment, and it was a hedge trimmer attachment. So you could still go to Home Depot and buy that that uh, that product that uh, me and another guy designed 20, 22 something years ago. Really? Yeah. 23 years ago, and they're still selling it, huh? Man, it, looks, it looks exactly the same. <laughs> oh, man, that's fantastic. Okay, so, so tell me. But otherwise, it's the same. This is a hedge trimmer attachment. It, it, it sounds like, I mean, it's not a, a hugely complex component. Is that accurate? I mean, it's like a, a plastic part that gets attached to your head trimmer, right? Yeah, so the, the, the Ryobi had this thing called the, it was called the Quick Link System. But basically, you bought the, the gas engine, you know, and instead of being a solid boom all the way down to your, the, the, the head where your, the, the string would come out, for trimming weeds, um, that boom was split and you could add um, a multitude of attachments, right? So they had the line trimmer, they had a head trimmer. Heck, they even had a small snow blower that I took up skiing with me one weekend and tested out for all weekend long. Okay, so when you say an attachment, it's not just like a piece of plastic. It's, no, it's no, no, this like is, a sub-assembly. It's basically you're using the gas engine as your power unit, and you could attach whatever you needed to do. Got you know, they it. Had, okay. They had a pruning saw. They yeah, had, yeah. Um, the line trimmer. They had the, the the leaf blower, a hedge trimmer. You know, my hedge trimmer had kind of like the, the saw blades where, you know, your standard hedge trimmer. But yeah, it looks, it looks almost like. To power like, all um, your lawn and garden tools. Like a pair of clippers, right, where there are two blades that reciprocate back and forth relative, you know, approximated mm-hmm. right up against it's each other. Long bar. Right, right, right. Yeah, bar, yeah. Oh, bar, it's a little bit like a chainsaw, but it's not a chainsaw. Yeah, like a linear chainsaw almost, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, I, I want to learn a little bit more about how long it took to develop that attachment. Because, like, at first I was thinking this is just like a, some plastic attachment, some little cover or shroud or something. And even then I was I was going to say, how, how long did it take to develop that? Because it's hard to appreciate how long it takes to develop something that's going to be mass produced, even something that's relatively simple. But now we're talking about something that's not just like a plastic part that gets snapped on. This is an entire sub-assembly. 
So, so tell me, how long did it take to develop this uh, hedge trimmer assembly? Well, the lawn and garden industry is a it's a tough industry to live in because there's this big trade show that everybody goes to. So basically, you have to get everything done within a year or less than a year. Everything is in like these one year or nine month cycles because you got to take your 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 product to the show. And at that show, you get all your orders for the next year, basically. Oh, okay. You're on this kind of one-year cycle. And so it's it's a very compressed timeline. And it's uh, it's definitely not easy. And and how it took, you know, so it took us, a, you know, a less than a, less than a year because you got to have everything done before you go to the show. Um, and and basically, when the guy when the sales guys go to the show one year. They come back and tell the engineering what everybody wants next year. Okay, you got a year to figure it out and get to the show with your product. Um, so when you you designed this hedge trimmer and it was you and I think you mentioned one other engineer, mm-hmm. so it's like a team mm-hmm. of two basically. Yep. Okay, when you when you two developed this hedge trimmer, uh, did you have like a predicate device to start with, or was this just from scratch? Well, the way Ryobi worked. Um, there was some some fellows that were in a separate building from us that were from Japan. And they were in charge of industrial design. So all of our products started out as this look. And as an engineer, we had to figure out how to make it work within those confines. And that was probably the, the toughest part of the job. I wanted to... Uh, increase the size of something because I wanted to put in a, we had a, a beveled pinion gear and I wanted to change, I wanted to reduce the speed of my, um, my blades. And um, so I wanted to make a, a bigger bevel gear. Um, and after multiple meetings and battles, I lost uh, the, the industrial design at that company was the end all be all. And um it had to look a certain way and it took me a long time to really kind of digest that and get over it. But it's the brutal reality of consumer products, you know, people buy pretty things, right? I always tell Rich, it's like, you know, the guys that work at the companies that sell fishing lures, they're not analyzing fish. They're analyzing fishermen because the uh, fishermen are the one picking up that lure off the, off the shelf and saying, this is the one I think is going to catch fish, but they don't, they never survey fish. You know, it's it's (laughs) about that, the feeling that it gives somebody when they pick it up off the shelf. And so uh, I guess as an engineer, I kind of push back on that mentality, but the reality is, it doesn't matter how good your design is. If somebody's not going to buy it, it was all a waste of time anyway. And so, in the consumer products world, you know, okay. in industrial, that is completely out the window, right? In the consumer products world, did you feel like that was the right strategy to make it look pretty first and then figure out how to make it function? At the time, I thought it was the worst idea ever. I was, I was in my early 20s or my mid-20s and was probably full of myself and uh now i'm almost 50 and <laughs> like it, it makes more sense than it used to i'll say that for sure 
Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, that's a big point. All right, you you moved on to the semiconductor industry, and I, I wanted to touch on that for a little bit because we've all heard, you know, the term semiconductor that gets thrown around a lot. It's a huge industry here in the U.S. and in the world, but I feel like, at least me anyway, I don't have a really good understanding of what semiconductor is you know like if i were to go into a building what what am i gonna see and 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 know oh yeah okay this this is semiconductor give us a sense for what that that space looks like what's what was happening what the equipment the machinery was like uh share a little bit of that right so i was i just had this conversation with uh, a fellow employee this morning about how the term semiconductor industry is overused, underdefined, and just way too broad of a of a statement. You know, it's good. I thought I was going to come out sounding really dumb asking that. No, question. There's, there's a million things that fall under that group, and there's things that, like I worked on it at Motorola there, that you know, I ne- I never handled wafers, right? I never polished a wafer. Um, but some people think that's really all there is to that industry. But there's so much more. So what we did there. We did these things called uh, ball grid arrays, and so we would um, have a, a, a tray full of chips that had a, an array of uh, metal flats on them, and we would take a, and we'd put this into a machine. Our machine would uh, have one end, one end effector that would dip about ten thousand needles down into a thin layer of flux paste and then go over and then these like little pogo pins would touch each one of those little metal pads on 10,000 spaces and transfer just a little bit of that flux paste, right? And then we had another head in that same machine that would go over a, a, a tray full of uh, solder spheres. And that's a little ball of solder that's maybe... Ten thousandths in diameter or eight thousandths in diameter, and uh, you know static is a real problem with this. You know you can imagine a little metal sphere like that. So we would pick up ten thousand spheres using a vacuum chuck, and then set those ten thousand spheres down on those chips, and that and then we drop them, and hope that sphere landed right in the middle of that pad and got stuck with that little bit of flux we had just put down. Wow. How far were they being dropped? Not far, I imagine. Not far, but, you know, you're talking about a 10,000 ball, you know? Yeah, yeah. It didn't take much for it to go awry on you, you know? Um, And then so those would come out with, you know, you'd fill up multiple trays, and then that would go over to what they call a reflow oven. And basically we are going to um, heat up that chip just enough to where the ball the bottom of the ball melted and then it attached to that pad that it was sitting on. So then you would have a chip that would have, let's say a hundred or 200, depending on how big it was, a little spheres of solder that were attached to the, the contact pads on there. And then those things could be put on an actual circuit board and they would run it through again in that process. So basically the, the pad on your chip had a sphere of solder melted to it, and then that same sphere would melt to something else. Um, so highly controlled temperatures and getting that to melt just right. Obviously, if it melts too much, it could 
bleed over onto your the, the adjacent contacts. So it was high precision, you know, type of things. We also made some some machines that would take a would cut up uh, chips with a, a saw blade that was about six thousandths of an inch thick. The saw but, blade was six thousandths of yeah, an inch thick. Like a wet saw, and so it was just like a razor, you know. But it was spinning. What was it made out of? Like a thin metal, and then it had like some type of ceramic thing on it. You know, okay. you can barely see the dang thing. You know, it was like we bought a machine from uh, an Asian company, and and then reworked their equipment to work with our system. So it was a lot of you know buying equipment and then making equipment that didn't exist. So you can get, you know, this chain of machines that you put something in one end and out the end, other end came a bunch of something else, you know. So yeah, yeah. it was a combination of custom equipment or reconfiguring off-the-shelf equipment to meet the customer's needs. And so it's just a lot of one-off machine design and uh, it's pretty unique stuff. Huh. Well, that sounds <laughs> delightful. One-off machine design. That's where we live. Yeah, that was a, that was kind of a fun job. Um, I liked it. I liked working there. It was fun. This six thousandths of an inch saw. I, I I keep going back to that. I've never heard of a six thousandths of an inch thick saw. What what was it cutting, and why did it have to be so thin? Because we're cutting these little. Um, they started instead of making the chips. They came up with the idea, instead of making these chips and cutting them up in the, initially and then us having to locate and drop the balls on there, they said, hey, what if we cut them up at the last step? So they'd print this whole circuit board, and that circuit board would have actually, you know, a couple hundred components on one board. And then they would do all these processes, and the last thing they would do, they would they'd cut it up in the little in the, each individual component. But it would have every, all the other processes done and it was kind of nice because we didn't have to locate a hundred times. We only, only located once, right? Okay. And then I we see. had to cut these things up and they were so tiny that, you know, any if you, we only had that much room plus our tolerance because if you went over, if the blade was thicker, it would, um, you know, it would cut into the, into the component, right? Yeah, I see. I get it. All right, quick break here. Um, short plug for my company, the Being an Engineer podcast is powered by Pipeline Design and Engineering, where we work with medical device engineering teams who need turnkey custom test fixtures or automated equipment to assemble, inspect, characterize, or perform verification or validation testing on their devices. And you can find us at testfixturedesign.com. We're speaking with Justin Smart today. So the next place that you actually you went you went to another semiconductor place, uh, 3S Phoenix, I think. But but after that, you went to uh, a completely different industry, Coletti Design. Am I saying that correctly, Coletti? Correct. Yep, yep. Okay, Coletti Design. Tell uh, I can't do it justice. So you you tell us a little bit, Coletti Design, completely different industry. What what were you doing there? Yeah, I went from high tech to to low tech in a very extreme way. Um, I did get to do, you know, back to the welding thing again, but I wasn't doing the welding. I had, uh, you know, I was designing the stuff that, that got welded up. So, um, and to be honest, you know, what happened was if you, if you look back at the chronology of, of that was, uh, we had a recession, 
basically, right? So um, a lot of things were kind of um, going south on us. And um, I had, I guess I had felt like the, the semiconductor industry, I'd had a couple of jobs in it and it was just seemed to be kind of a little shaky, you know, it was up and down, you know, kind of a feast or famine thing. And so I had, I had saw the uh, a job opportunity at this at this place called Clady Design, and I worked there for uh, for a couple of years, um, doing basically uh, drawing iron entry doors. Um, so I would draw up the doors, um, all the artwork that went inside of them, and then all that all my my output would basically go out to the um, shop via a, a plasma cutter or a few other tools and to to make the parts that I designed and then they got all welded together and they would become a door um, for very high. And I'm talking like a $20,000 door, you know, it's a, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was looking at the website and the impression I got, these are not cookie cutter house doors. These are yeah, like extremely high end. Very right. high end doors. Yeah. Very high. Was end. it, was it mostly businesses or was there a lot of just high end residential uh, homes as well? What was the spread there? I would say um, at Coletti, it was primarily um, high-end residential. Okay. High end residential. And yeah. what what were the common manufacturing processes that that uh, you all used to produce these doors? So at Coletti, it was very old world. You know, they the about the only the thing that was automated was the fact that I had a plasma cutter. That was CNC control. Okay. So for let's say if I had a, a door with an arch on the top, you know, it, we didn't have a hydro former to roll tube, you know, that big heavy wall tube. So you would basically um, form a tube out of four pieces of metal. So we're going to cut the arches and then roll some sheet metal on top of that and form a box or a tube. And then, but that gets repeated throughout the door. You got the door, then you got the, the frame on the outside and any window uh, sashing and things like that. So that was about the highest tech thing we had was a, a CNC control plasma cutter to cut arches um, that we would need. And then everything else was um, welded and ground to, to, to fit, you know. And was, uh, was everything so manual just because of the kind of the intricacy of what was being designed or where the, the company just kind of hadn't moved on to the next phase of, of the engineering world with automation? Yet? A little bit of that, but at the same time, we're talking about an old world practice, you know, metal forming, blacksmithing. It's, it's kind of, you know... Blacksmithing will always be old school, even if you get some new tools, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, you, know, you, you used to have to uh, kick your bellows to, to get your fire hot, you know? Yeah. Nowadays, you can hit a, hit a switch on a fan and it'll blow heat into your, into your uh, furnace box and get it cherry hot for you. So, um, <laughs> do, you, do you think that's some of what these homeowners were paying for? The fact that there's some custom element to each one of these doors, right? Like, like there's some guy out on a shop rolling these things up. It's not being stamped out of machine at, you know, a hundred cycles per minute or something. Yeah. And to be honest with you, there's, when we, when I first started in the industry, that was not as common as it is now 
there's a couple of companies that are making doors. Um, I'm trying to the name of the one, but I believe it's just across the border in Mexico. And they sell a lot of doors in the Southwest and these metal, but they, they're, they have like five different designs and they're, they're kind of automated, you know, they, they look old world, but if you get up close to them, you can tell that it was really, you know, not so custom. Right. So, okay. Yeah. It kind of depends. Um, huh. But the, you know, you get what you pay for, right? Yeah. I, I saw one picture on the website, the Coletti website. It was a set of doors that had been designed, uh, I guess, specifically for like a large wine cabinet. And I wondered, do you have any any memories of projects that were kind of interesting? You know, like you think of doors as, you know, it's the front door of your house, but they're probably doors for a lot of other things. Do you remember any projects or experiences where you guys developed a door for something that, you, you know, you we might not think of every day? Well, um, I would say that, well, so I worked at Coletti and then I left there and went to work for their competitor. Um, and, you know, so it was kind of doing the same thing. We did a ton of wine doors, wine, wine cellar doors, you know, um, people have this tendency to, it's, it was in their basement. It had a lot of stonework. And so that iron entry door just kind of really fit the motif. Got it. Um, yeah. There's a, a company that's called King Architectural Products. And they're like the worldwide leader for iron um, components. You know, you can buy handrail and the balusters. You can just buy all this stuff out of a catalog and then weld it all up and build just about whatever you want. And for some reason, they have got they had a ton of like grapes and grape leaves and a wide assortment of those. And so we could just get all these really cool grapes and grape leaves and make these really fancy doors for your wine cellar and. And we made a ton of them. I mean, a ton of them. Everybody that bought one for their fancy house had to have a little one for their their wine cell in their basement. Um, that those were always kind of interesting. And then um, I did a couple of, of doors for um, a gun store that was. I don't. I, we just shipped them. I never saw the place, but we had, they had specified. We used a. We had to order some special steel. Um, it was bulletproof. Or a little resistant. I remember it was a little uh, more difficult to manage out in the shop. Um, I think we had to crack the power of the plasma table a little bit, you know, to get it to cut right. But um, that was interesting. Yeah. Because I just I think I'm up by some guy being behind that door someday, and some other some other guy trying to shoot his way in, and I was wondering yeah. if it was going to last. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you never know. Yeah. Either that or the cyber truck needs to be there to stop it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so that the other company, the competitor of Coletti, that was uh, First Impression Ironworks, I believe. Mm-hmm. And I read on their website the word rot, rot iron, which mm-hmm. I, I think, I mean, that kind of refers to like banging on something with a hammer. Were, were yeah, there the whole casting process, which is, you know, nobody's doing that anymore really that these days. But um, there's a company called Hebo that makes these, it's a German company that makes these, what I would call blacksmithing tools of the 20 or 21st century. Um, we okay. bought a bunch of those, um, from Germany, but the tooling for that they sold was astronomically expensive. And even if you were willing to pay for it, the lead times were like, you better plan a good year in advance if you wanted something because it was an amazing long times. So after we bought the equipment, my boss 
we, we quickly realized that we had this problem that we had only purchased certain tools and we needed a bunch more. So we started to kind of reverse engineering their tooling and, and, and make it our own so we could make more stuff and more designs and create basically create more tooling so we can make different and expand our library of parts that these Hebo machines could bend. And they're basically like, you know, if you think about a blacksmith taking a piece of bar and he's hammering it around a, an anvil, right? You know, so that anvil horn has got a specific shape for a reason because you're typically wanting to form things around it. And so this, this automated machinery had would allow you to stick a bar in and would have some cam, you know, levers and it would just basically roll something or bend it or, you know, we had a few different machines, but it was modern blacksmithing. And so cool. that, that was closer to the old world stuff than, than a lot of companies are doing because most companies are just buying those things pre-made from King. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So we were actually now, forging, forging on a daily basis. In, in my world and in your world now as well, we're concerned with tolerances that are down in the thousands of an inch spectrum. I imagine that was not the case at Coletti and at, at First Impression Ironworks. What kind of tolerances did you guys deal with? Well, it's an architectural product, so we're going to work in uh, fractions of an inch, not decimals, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> um, and, you know, I would say um, it depended on – the product and what part of the product, you know, but, but to your point, um, everything was custom and basically kind of ground to fit, you know? Okay. So, so you're like pushing things into place to get them to fit and then welding it. It, it, not, nothing is precision here. Plus or minus, I don't know what, 16th of an I inch would say on the, on the OD of the door, you got a quarter inch on the width. Quarter you know? inch. Okay. Okay. Because you're yeah. going to put your door in, there's always a gap that you're going to put your shims in and then you're going to cover it with trim anyway. Right. Good point. Okay. You're going to see your door frame is not even close to the studs and there's going to be probably some chunks of wood stuck in there as shims. Yeah. Yeah. You, you got a certain tolerance on the, when you get out there with the, with the iron door, it's got to fit in the hole, you know? <laughs> so it, it, on that kind of thing, your tolerance, you always want to go, plus nothing minus something basically yeah otherwise you're taking a, the saws all to something that you probably don't want to take the saws all to maybe that's a good opportunity to bust out that six thousandths of an inch semiconductor saw get some nice precision cuts in there <laughs> uh, and correct me if i'm wrong uh, i think that you were the director of operations at first impression is that right how how was that going from being you know a design engineer to director of operations? Um, a lot of hard work, and um, you know, just I'm a problem solver. Re, you know, kind of regardless, and you know, I could just get the job done and and get the team motivated. You know, we had close to 200 employees over there. Um, I had wow, that's four, a big team. Yeah, I had four different departments that that I basically was in charge of um, the design group only being one of, of the four. So it was a lot of, a lot of 60 hour weeks is what it was. Really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Did you miss being a designer? You know, the design work there is so rudimentary that I, I quickly kind of, you know, it's not like, it's not real design work in the sense that um, I was really challenged with a real problem, you know, because they're just doors, you know. Okay, once you figure out the problem, I what I would do is train somebody on how to deal with it. I didn't want to, you know, continually have the same problem every day. So Okay. So director of operations, that was a much more interesting problem for your brain to noodle on then. Exactly. I had all kinds of problems. <laughs> Tell know. me about some of them. What were some of the more interesting problems or challenging that, that you ended up solving? Well, I'd say one of the, my departments was the shipping department. Um, we, we had, when I started there, it was basically we just serviced Arizona. You know, That was our customer base was Arizona. Security screen doors. Then we got in the iron entry doors and it started growing and growing and growing. And then someone said, hey, can you ship me one to California? Okay, yeah, we can do that. Put it in a box, ship it over there. And then, but the most interesting ones I got, I had a customer up in Canada said, hey, I have a house. They had a house in somewhere here in Arizona, Snowbirds, right? And, but they, they, their main residence was back in Canada. And uh, so they had ordered a door from us for their house in Arizona and they loved it. I said, you know what? We've got to have a big iron entry door for our house in Canada. And um, they sent me some pictures of their door um, that winter after we, it was installed. And I came to the realization that metal doors like that in Canada, where it snows a lot and it's really cold, not the best idea. Because and, of uh, rust and corrosion? No, mainly just because they're thermal conductors. Um, so... The uh, and they didn't seal that well, to be honest with you. You know, we put door sealing in there, but they just the nature, the size of them, the old worldness of them. It was no space shuttle door, you know. Got it. <laughs> and um, so, even though they were blown with foam on the inside, the steel tube would just conduct so much thermal energy that um, they showed me a picture, and basically there was a it looked like you had left your freezer door kind of open or a little. It was like an iceberg on the inside of their house that had frozen. On their wow. Door. It was a so mess. They, they couldn't yeah. open the door? No, it was just a little bit of the air was the air was so cold outside because it's in Canada. Uh-huh. It's so cold that it's making the whole metal door cold. Okay, and then that just makes the inside of the house cold. And so the, the inside of the door is almost as cold as the outside because it's so cold. <laughs> I see, okay. The inside of the door, because it's metal, is below 32 degrees. Oof. And so a little draft was coming in, I guess, from the door. A combination of the – they might have been running a humidifier in their house because a lot of people do were in cold-weather climates. Um, I know when I was growing up in cold weather, we would typically run a humidifier in the wintertime because the air gets so dry. And um, so it like formed an iceberg, basically, the giant icicle on the inside, inside of the door, into the house. And they were, you know, it was a problem. <laughs> and they probably paid, you know, many, many thousands of dollars for this custom door. Oh, yeah. $15,000 door, at least. It was a wow. Door. So the moral of the story is don't lick the inside of your 
Iron Door in Canada. Even if you get a double dog dare, do not lay Even it. if you get a double dog dare, yeah, forget about it. Go shoot your eye out instead. Yeah, so I, I think it's uh, it was a uh, they're they're better suited for your warmer climates. Uh, you know, metal's a, a really good insulator, whether you want it to be or not. You know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So fast forward to current day. You work at Interlink Engineering. Tell us a little bit about Interlink. What uh, what does Interlink do? What's your role there? Well, I started out working for Interlink. Um, I, I took the job as a mechanical designer and I worked in, in that department here for um, probably about a year and a half. And um, the opportunity arose for me to move in, move up and, and move into uh a more of a managerial role and also focus on sales. So it was, you know, a new challenge for me. something I'd never done before. Um, everybody that I know kept telling me that's what I should be doing. Um, Why? I have no idea. <laughs> I, I still don't really know. <laughs> um, but most importantly, Rich, my boss, he was um, a believer. He believes in me, you know, and, uh, he believes in my talent and, and my uh, my what I have to say and what I you know my getting close to thirty years of experience and doing this I've seen quite a bit and, and done quite a few things so um, it's it's a, definitely been a, a growth path for me um, almost on a spiritual level I guess you know it just wow. Same thing for your whole life, and then it's kind of this whole new thing. So it's been kind of uh, mind-expanding and fun for me. Um, Frustrating sometimes, but, you know, um, I really really enjoyed it. And then working for Interlink in general, um, you know, sometimes all my jobs I've I've had, you know, I worked for a manufacturing company that did this, right? You know, whether it was doors or, or or automation equipment or electric motors, it was one thing, right? You did one thing. And at Interlink, if you don't like what you're working on, just wait a couple of weeks. You'll be on something different. <laughs> I really enjoyed that um, constant, new, exciting problems um, that, get, you know, that, that come across our place. So, um I'm still heavily involved with, you know, I, I can go out and sell a project and then communicate that back to my team, what needs to happen, and then still be involved um, sometimes on a, from a conceptual design standpoint. So I might kind of flush out the idea and then pass that down to one of my designers or engineers to kind of wrap up the details and, and, and get it to something we can get manufactured. Um, we also, you know, we started selling 3D printers a few years ago. Um, that's been super exciting because um, I actually started using 3D printers back in the 90s. And um, so it's I've seen it come a long way. And I am impressed what we can do with them nowadays compared to what we did 30 years ago. And uh, it's just it's been a lot of fun. I really like working here. What what are some of the 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 challenges? Some of the biggest problems that that you face, uh, uh, not necessarily on a daily basis, but just generally at work. What are some of the biggest challenges that you have to overcome? Hmm. You know, 
I, lately, it's been uh, it's man been managing how to maintain a, a sense of normalcy uh, throughout this COVID experience. You know, yeah, that's been. I think probably. You know, I, I I would say that I've been through two recessions since I've you know been in the working world, and um, this is way worse. You know, even though. You know, I haven't, you know, we're still chugging along. It's just, we're in such a weird space that, you know, nobody, I never thought that we'd be walking around wearing masks. I never thought that, um, you know, I love going to my customer's office and walking the floor with them and helping them out with their problems and not being able to do that, you know, and get down and where the rubber meets the road and, and look at a machine right there next to you. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's been super challenging for me to try to, you know, keep things going, I guess. Um, are, are you do you prefer to work in a space where there are other people and you get to interact? I mean, directly, physically with other people, or do you prefer a space where uh, you're kind of, you know, just by yourself doing your own thing and, and you don't have to really worry about uh, what other people are doing? I kind of have two two lives in that sense. Um, you know, I think more during the daytime, um, getting pulled out of the different directions and helping people out and, you know, answering questions from different coming at from different directions at nighttime. Um, after, after dinner and the, and the kids put to bed, I, I definitely have some quiet focused work time. Um, I probably get most done, um, after nine o'clock at night. Oh, really? Yeah. Just because I can, nobody's calling me. Nobody's sending me emails. Nobody's asking yeah, me. Yeah. And, and I, for some reason, I, I feel a little more creative in the evening hours. Um, I don't know why, you know, like laying in bed, I, I get my best ideas, like literally laying in bed. So, um, <laughs> I, and I think it's really just, that time of day for me when I can really kind of um, when the, basically all the other noise stops, you know? Yeah. 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 All right. Well, Justin, we need to wrap up here. Uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but last question, how can people get a hold of you? Well, you can go to our website. Um, it's interlinkengineering.net or um, you can reach out to us by phone at 480-699-0600 or you can shoot me an email at justin at interlinkengineering.net excellent all right well justin thank you so much for for sharing your time today it's been really cool hearing about all the different things that you've done especially like in in the architectural world we've never really had an engineer on the show that has been in that space so that was it was really interesting hearing about uh, how doors are made and kind of that old school blacksmithing. Uh, great, a great twist to the show. I appreciate, appreciate you sharing all that. Well, thanks for having me. And it was fun. You bet until next time. All right. We'll talk to you soon, bud. I'm Aaron Monker, founder of pipeline design and engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a positive review. It really helps other people find the show. To learn how your engineering team can leverage our team's expertise in developing turnkey custom test fixtures, 
automated equipment, and product design, visit us at testfixturedesign.com. Thanks for listening.